Chapter Seventeen, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen, The Polar Journey, The Pole and After, Part One. Don Juan, this creature man who, in his own selfish affairs, is a coward to the backbone, will fight for an idea like a hero. He may be abject as a citizen, but he is dangerous as a fanatic. He can only be enslaved while he is spiritually weak enough to listen to reason. I tell you, gentlemen, if you can show a man a piece of what he now calls God's work to do, and what he will later on call by many new names, you can make him entirely reckless of the consequences to himself personally. Don Juan Every idea for which man will die will be a Catholic idea. When the Spaniard learns at last that he is no better than the Saracen, and his prophet no better than Mohammed, he will arise, more Catholic than ever, and die on a barricade across the filthy slum he starves in, for universal liberty and equality. The statue. Bosch. Don Juan. What you call Bosch is the only thing men dare die for. Later on, liberty will not be Catholic enough. Men will die for human perfection, to which they will sacrifice all their liberty gladly. Bernard Shaw, Man and Superman. The Polar Party. Scott, Wilson, Bowers, Oates, Seaman Evans. Depots. One ton, 79 degrees, 29 minutes. Upper Barrier or Mount Hooper, 80 degrees 32 minutes. Middle Barrier, 81 degrees 35 minutes. Lower Barrier, 82 degrees 47 minutes. Shambles Camp, north of Gateway. Lower Glacier, south of Gateway. Middle Glacier, Cloudmaker. Upper Glacier, Mount Darwin. 3 degree, 86 degrees 56 minutes. One and a half degree, eighty-eight degrees twenty-nine minutes. Last depot, eighty-nine degrees thirty-two minutes. Scott returned from the Discovery Expedition impressed by the value of youth in polar work, but the five who went forward from eighty-seven degrees thirty-two minutes were all grown men, chosen from a body which was largely recruited on a basis of youth. Four of them were men who were accustomed to take the responsibility and to lead others. Four of them had wide sledging experience and were accustomed to cold temperatures. They were none of them likely to get flurried in emergency, to panic under any circumstances, or to wear themselves out by loss of nervous control. Scott and Wilson were the most highly strung of the party. I believe that the anxiety which Scott suffered served as a stimulus against mental monotony rather than as a drain upon his energy. Scott was forty-three, Wilson thirty-nine, Evans thirty-seven, Oates thirty-two, and Bowers twenty-eight years old. Bowers was exceptionally old for his age. In the event of one man crocking, a five-man party may be better able to cope with the situation, but with this doubtful exception Scott had nothing to gain, and a good deal to lose by taking an extra man to the pole. That he did so means, I think, that he considered his position a very good one at this time. He was anxious to take as many men with him as possible. I have an impression that he wanted the army represented as well as the navy. Be that as it may, he took five men. He decided to take the extra man at the last moment, and in doing so he added one more link to a chain. But he was content, 
and four days after the last return party left them, as he lay out a blizzard, quite warm in his sleeping-bag, though the midday temperature was minus twenty degrees, he wrote a long diary praising his companions very highly indeed. So our five people are perhaps as happily selected as it is possible to imagine. He speaks of Seaman Evans as being a giant worker, with a really remarkable headpiece. There is no mention of the party feeling the cold, though they were now at the greatest height of their journey. The food satisfied them thoroughly. There is no shadow of trouble here. Only Evans has got a nasty cut on his hand. There were more disadvantages in this five-man party than you might think. There was five and a half weeks' food for four men. Five men would eat this in about four weeks. In addition to the extra risk of breakdown, there was a certain amount of discomfort involved, for everything was arranged for four men, as I have already explained. The tent was a four-man tent, and an inner lining had been lashed to the bamboos, making it smaller still. When stretched out for the night, the sleeping-bags of the two outside men must have been partly off the floor-cloth, and probably on the snow. Their bags must have been touching the inner tent and collecting the rime which was formed there. Cooking for five took about half an hour longer in the day than cooking for four, half an hour off your sleep, or half an hour off your march. I do not believe that five men on the lid of a crevasse are as safe as four. Wilson writes that the stow of the sledge with five sleeping-bags was pretty high. This makes it top-heavy, and liable to capsize in rough country. But what would have paralysed anybody except Bowers was the fact that they had only four pairs of ski between the five of them. To slog along on foot, in soft snow, in the middle of four men pulling rhythmically on the ski, must have been tiring and even painful, and Birdie's legs were very short. No steady swing for him, and little chance of getting his mind off the job in hand. Scott could never have meant to take on five men when he told his supporting team to leave their ski behind, only four days before he reorganised. "'May I be there,' wrote Wilson, of the men chosen to travel the ice-cap to the pole. "'About this time next year, may I be there or thereabouts. With so many young bloods in the heyday of youth and strength beyond my own, I feel there will be a most difficult task in making choice towards the end. I should like to have Bill to hold my hand when we get to the pole,' said Scott. Wilson was there, and his diary is that of an artist, watching the clouds and mountains, of a scientist observing ice and rock and snow, of a doctor, and above all of a man with good judgment. You will understand that the thing which really interested him in this journey was the acquisition of knowledge. It is a restrained, and for the most part a simple, record of facts. There is seldom any comment, and when there is you feel that, for this very reason, it carries more weight. Just about this time, December 24th. Very promising. Thoroughly enjoyed the afternoon march. Christmas Day, and a real good and happy one, with a very long march. January 1st, 1912. We had only six hours sleep last night, by mistake, but I had mine solid in one piece, actually waking in exactly the same position as I fell asleep in six hours before, never moved. January 2nd. We were surprised today by seeing a skewer gull flying over us, evidently hungry, but not weak. Its droppings, however, were clear mucus, nothing in them at all. It appeared in the afternoon and disappeared again about half an hour after. And then on January 3rd, Last night Scott told us what plans were for the South Pole. Scott, Oates, Bowers, Petty Officer Evans and I are to go to the Pole. Teddy Evans is to return from here tomorrow with Crean and Lashley. Scott finished his week's cooking tonight, and I begin mine tomorrow. Just that. The next day Bowers wrote, 
I had my farewell breakfast in the tent with Teddy Evans, Crean, and Lashley. After so little sleep the previous night, I rather dreaded the march. We gave our various notes, messages, and letters to the returning party and started off. They accompanied us for about a mile before returning, to see that all was going well. Our party were on ski, with the exception of myself. I first made fast to the central span, but afterwards connected up to the toggle of the sledge, pulling in the centre between the inner ends of Captain Scott's and Dr. Wilson's traces. This was found to be the best place, as I had to go my own step. Teddy and party gave us three cheers, and Crean was half in tears. They have a featherweight sledge to go back with, of course, and ought to run down their distance easily. We found we could manage our load easily, and did 6.3 miles before lunch, completing 12.5 by 7.15 p.m. Our marching hours are nine per day. It is a long slog, with a well-loaded sledge, and more tiring for me than the others, as I have no ski. However, as long as I can do my share all day and keep fit, it does not matter much one way or the other. We had our first northerly wind on the plateau today, and a deposit of snow crystals made the surface like sand latterly on the march. The sledge dragged like lead. In the evening it fell calm, and although the temperature was minus sixteen degrees, it was positively pleasant to stand about outside the tent and bask in the sun's rays. It was our first calm since we reached the summit too. Our socks and other damp articles which we hang out to dry at night become immediately covered with long feathery crystals, exactly like plumes. Socks, mitts, and finesco dry splendidly up here during the night. We have little trouble with them compared with spring and winter journeys. I generally spread my bag out in the sun during the one and a half hours of lunch time, which gives the reindeer hair a chance to get rid of the damage done by the deposit of breath and any perspiration during the night. Plenty of sun, heavy surfaces, iridescent clouds, the worst wind-cut sastrugi I have seen, covered with bunches of crystals like gorse. Ice blink all round, hairy faces and mouths dreadfully iced up on the march, hot and sweaty days work, but sometimes cold hands in the loops of the ski sticks, windy, streaky cirrus in every direction, all thin and filmy and scrappy, horizon clouds all being wafted about. These are some of the impressions here and there in Wilson's diary during the first ten days of the party's solitary march. On the whole, he is enjoying himself, I think. You should read Scott's diary yourself and form your own opinions, but I think that after the last return party left him there is a load off his mind. The thing had worked so far. It was up to them now, that great mass of figures and weights and averages, those years of preparation, those months of anxiety. No one of them had been in vain. They were up to date in distance, and there was a very good amount of food, probably more than was necessary to see them to the pole and off the plateau on the full rations. Best thought of all, perhaps, the motors with their uncertainties, the ponies with their suffering, the glacier with its possibilities of disaster, all were behind, and the two main supporting parties were safely on their way home. Here with him was a fine party, tested and strong, and only 148 miles from the pole. I can see them, working with a business-like air, with no fuss and no unnecessary talk, each man knowing his job and doing it, pitching the tent, finishing the camp work, and sitting round on their sleeping-bags while their meal was cooked, warming their hands on their mugs, saving a biscuit to eat when they woke in the night, packing the sledge with a good neat stow, marching with a solid swing. We have seen them do it so often, and they did it jolly well. And the conditions did not seem so bad. Tonight it is flat calm, 
the sun so warm that in spite of the temperature we can stand about outside in the greatest comfort. It is amusing to stand thus and remember the constant horrors of our situation as they were painted for us. The sun is melting the snow on the ski, etc. The plateau is now very flat, but we are still ascending slowly. The Sastrugi are getting more confused, predominant from the southeast. I wonder what is in store for us. At present everything seems to be going with extraordinary smoothness. We feel the cold very little. The great comfort of our situation is the excellent drying effect of the sun. Our food continues to amply satisfy. What luck to have hit on such an excellent ration. We really are an excellently found party. We lie so very comfortably, warmly clothed in our comfortable bags, within our double-walled tent. Then something happened. While Scott was writing the sentences you have just read, he reached the summit of the plateau and started, ever so slightly, to go downhill. The list of corrected altitudes given by Simpson in his meteorological report are of great interest. Cape Evans, zero. Shambles Camp, 170. Upper Glacier Depot, 7,151. Three Degree Depot, 9,392. One and a half Degree Depot, 9,862. South Pole, 9,072 feet above sea level. What happened is not quite clear, but there is no doubt that the surface became very bad, that the party began to feel the cold, and that before long Evans especially began to crock. The immediate trouble was bad surfaces. I will try and show why these surfaces should have been met in what was, you must remember, now a land which no man had travelled before. Scott laid his one and a half degree depot, i.e. one and a half degrees or ninety miles from the pole, on January 10th. That day they started to go down, but for several days before that the plateau had been pretty flat. Time after time in the diaries you find crystals, 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 crystals falling through the air, crystals bearding the sastrugi, crystals lying loose upon the snow, sandy crystals upon which the sun shines and which made pulling a terrible effort. When the sky clouds over, they get along much better. The clouds form and disperse without visible reason, and generally the wind is in their faces. Wright tells me that there is certain evidence in the records which may explain these crystals. Halos are caused by crystals, and nearly all those logged from the bottom of the Beardmore to the pole and back were on this stretch of country, where the land was falling. Bowers mentions that the crystals did not appear in all directions, which goes to show that the air was not always rising, but sometimes was falling, and therefore not depositing its moisture. There is no doubt that the surfaces met were very variable, and it may be that the snow lay in waves. Bowers mentions big undulations for thirty miles before the pole, and other inequalities may have been there which were not visible. There is sometimes evidence that these crystals were formed on the windward side of these waves, and carried over by a strong wind and deposited on the lee side. It is common knowledge that as you rise in the atmosphere, so the pressure decreases. In fact, it is usual to measure your height by reading the barometer. Now the air on this last stretch to the pole was rising, for the wind was from the south, and as we have seen, the plateau here was sloping down towards the pole. The air driven uphill by this southerly wind was forced to rise. As it rose, it expanded because the pressure was less. Air which has expanded without any heat being given to it from the outside that is, in a heat-proof vessel, is said to expand by adiabatic expansion. Such air tends first 
to become saturated and then to precipitate its moisture. These conditions were approximately fulfilled on the plateau, where the air expanded as it rose, but could get little or no heat from outside. The air therefore precipitated its moisture in the form of crystals. End of chapter 17, part 1